fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, Aretes, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Thank you, Ed. I'm sure Ed's sick and tired of coming up here by now. <laughs> Stay there real quick, if you will, with me in 2 Corinthians, if you haven't turned away just yet. What does Paul say that he faces? What kind of things is Paul enduring in his ministry? This right here in 2 Corinthians, Paul, as we saw, is is boasting about his own weakness, right? He's, he's glorifying God because of these awful tragedies that have happened to him. What are some of the things that we see him endure? It's okay, you can answer. Beatings? Shipwrecks? Stoned? Say it. Danger. Lots of danger. Cold and exposure, right? We know about, a little bit about that in Texas. With all the heat. Could you ever, have you ever wondered how in the world could he possibly endure all that? What kind of man must he be? He must have superpowers, right? He's part of the Marvel Universe or something. Right? This is crazy, the amount of stuff this guy endures. What possibly could help him through that? And then maybe we might ask the same question. How could we possibly face these kind of trials and persecutions that he would face? How could we do that? Two weeks ago, we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit in facing persecution. We saw that we must first remember that all persecution is ultimately aimed at the triune God. 
Second, we saw that the Holy Spirit helps us respond by sharing the gospel. One of the ways we must respond to persecution is by sharing the gospel, much like Paul did. When someone persecutes us, we can know one important truth. That person needs the gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can respond to those who would seek to harm us by sharing the gospel with them. Third, we saw that the Holy Spirit helps us to stay faithful through the persecution. You see, God doesn't try to protect us from persecution. Rather, he helps us stay faithful through the persecution. Persecution is merely a circumstance. Our trust in Jesus Christ is a conviction, something we believe at the core of our being. The circumstances around us can change, but our faith in Jesus Christ should not. Now today we'll see three more truths that Jesus gives to his disciples to help them face the persecution with courage. Remember at this time, Jesus is about to face his death. He is about to leave the disciples. And they're going to face persecution. At this point, Jesus has, faced, has been enduring the brunt of the attacks. But no longer. Jesus will be gone. He'll die. He'll raise from the dead. Forty days later, he'll ascend back into heaven. And his disciples will no longer have Jesus there. And who's going to face the brunt of the persecution then? They will. So he's giving, a, giving the, the, these disciples some, some help here. I, I would also suggest that these truths we learn today can help us not only through persecution, but from all kinds of trials. You may think, what's the difference between a trial and a persecution? Let me help you with this a little bit. When your boss fires you just because you're a Christian, that would be persecution. When you stand before a doctor and he or she tells you that you have terminal cancer, it's a trial. When your friends ridicule you because you refuse to join in with racist or sexual joking, that would be persecution. When your wife comes to you late at night and tells you she, she, that she doesn't think your marriage is working, that's a trial. You see, in all of these situations, the three truths we learn today in our text can help us through those times. These three truths can help us have a better focus so that we can seek to glorify the Lord through our circumstances. We will see that we can persevere through persecution and trials because of the convicting and guiding work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we'll see that we can persevere through persecution and trials because of the promise of the return of Christ. And finally, we will see that we can persevere through persecution and trials because of Jesus' sovereign rule over the universe. Let's look at our passage this morning. We're going to be in John, John chapter 16. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 4 through to the end of the chapter. John chapter 16, beginning at the end of verse 4, through to the end of the chapter. We'll read this, and then we'll open it up in a word of prayer. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. 
But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the father so they were saying what does he mean by a little while we do not know what he is talking about isn't that familiar Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him so he said to them Is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the name, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you until now. You have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus continues, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I no longer will speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come before your word. What a privilege it is to read your scriptures, to read the comfort that it gives. God, you don't leave us alone. You don't leave us with no plan. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've promised us a future and eternity with you. And Lord, you've assured us that you have overcome the world. Lord, we can face persecution and trial because of these truths. Pray as we, as we walk through these scriptures that, Lord, your Holy Spirit will guide us, will help us to understand how to apply these to our lives. In your name, amen. So first in the text, we see that we can persevere through persecution and trials because of the convicting and guiding work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you remember, we've talked about this section is known as the farewell discourse. It's Jesus's final words before he goes to the cross. And this section in particular, um, or we've, we've seen that there's been five different, or there are a total of five different paraclete sayings or teachings about the Holy Spirit. This is number four and five. These are the last two teachings about the Holy Spirit. We see there's a convicting work and a guiding work. Notice also in verse seven, it says that Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit and that is to our advantage, right? Jesus says, basically is telling them, if I don't go, you won't get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift. We've seen that in the past weeks already. We've also seen this, this same truth that though sending the Holy Spirit is to our advantage. It is a help to us. Verse, uh, we see then um, in verse, uh, verse 8, it says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We first see there is a convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to us. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit is going to work is he is going to convict he says there's three things he's going to convict concerning. One is concerning sin. One is concerning righteousness. And one is concerning judgment. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit is kind of twofold. There is a work of drawing people to salvation. And there's also a work of making believers more like Christ in this convicting process. We see where the, why that or Jesus' explanation of this in verse 9 is concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So there's two focuses on this convicting work. For an unbeliever, he's convicting of sin. Right, Jesus says he, the Holy Spirit will convict of sin to the person who does not believe, the people who are of this world, who are, who are a part of the, the system of this world that is against God. This first work is a convicting work of sin. He says it is because they do not believe in me. So what is he telling the world? He's convicting them of sin, showing them their sin, showing them what Ephesians 2 says is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. If you are here today and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not a Christian, 
You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And the Holy Spirit is telling you that even now, that apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, there is no hope of salvation. There is no hope of eternal life. In fact, he continues on and says that he also convicts the world of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's convicting the world of righteousness? He even says in his explanation, he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What is this righteousness that is being talked about? I would say it would suggest that the righteousness being talked about is twofold. First of all, it is the righteousness of Christ. See, we are dead in our trespasses and sins outside of Christ. We are dead. But Christ is righteous. Christ lived a sinless, perfect life. Died on the cross so that you may have access to that life. So that I may have access to that life. It is only because of Christ's righteousness that we can be saved. Secondly, I would say the other kind of righteousness is a false righteousness. We have Christ's true righteousness that he convicts the world concerning. And secondly, it's the false righteousness of this world. You ever talk to somebody who you know for 100% without a doubt they are not a believer and you say, hey, you're, you are a sinner. And they say, no, I'm not. I'm not that bad. I'm an okay guy. Right? This is false righteousness. I'm okay. I've got this covered. I'm a good guy. You know, I don't cheat people. Okay. That doesn't mean that you're not dead in your trespasses and sins, right? We, the world has a false righteousness, a false belief that they are somehow better than someone else. If, uh, Isaiah chapter 64 and verse six says this about that righteousness it says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our deeds or all of our righteousness are like a polluted garment. And I apologize ahead of time for being a little bit crass, but the phrase here means the phrase when he says they're like polluted garments, this is like dirty menstrual rags. That is literally what Isaiah is saying, what Paul repeats. That is what your righteousness is like. You say, well, I'm a pretty good person. What does scripture say about that pretty goodness? It's filthy. It's disgusting. Something that should be thrown away. On your best day, that is all you can offer apart from Christ is filth. Third, he convicts the unbeliever concerning judgment. He says, because the ruler of this world is judged. The enemy is defeated and there is judgment waiting for him. For those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2 reminds us that we are also enemies of God. Outside of Jesus, without Jesus, we are also the very enemies of God. There's judgment coming. Eternal judgment is coming in a very real place called hell. Now what about a believer? Does the Holy Spirit convict believers? Now, again, I would, say, I would say that the main force of this passage here is the Holy Spirit's work in unbelievers. 
But I would also suggest that there is an element where this is also true of believers. When we don't turn away from that evil on the computer screen, the Holy Spirit is there to remind us that it's sin, convicts us concerning sin. Concerning righteousness, when we compare ourselves to others and think that we're not as bad as they are, the Holy Spirit reminds us that the only good in us is Christ in us. So we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. See, the Holy Spirit convicts us as well. The continual convicting work of the Holy Spirit is going on right now and will continue until Christ returns. But there's a second work of the Holy Spirit that's brought up here. He says in verse 12, it says, I still have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Well, there's a guiding work of the Holy Spirit. There's three parts of this guiding work of the Holy Spirit. And all three of these, this is beautiful, all three of these works of the Holy Spirit all show the humility of the Holy Spirit. You ever wonder why people don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit? Why we sometimes miss what the Holy Spirit is doing? Because the Holy Spirit's main goal is to focus the attention off of himself. It says that the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. Where does the Holy Spirit want you to go? To truth. Now, what truth is that talking about? Jesus? Scripture? Who inspired the Scriptures to be written? God the Holy Spirit, specifically. This book was given to man by the Holy Spirit. If you want to know what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do, you can read this book. He's already told us. He guides us to all truth. And secondly, as we already, as, as Sue already mentioned, he also guides us to Christ. Look at this. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you all things that are to come. On whose authority does the Holy Spirit speak? Jesus explains this here. It is on his authority. The Holy Spirit guides us to truth and the Holy Spirit guides us to Christ. The Holy Spirit wants us to see Jesus and bring him glory. We saw this also in the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, right? He's drawing unbelievers and saying, you need Jesus. You need his salvation. The authority by which the Holy Spirit speaks to us is an authority which draws us and points us to Jesus. And third, we see that the guiding, the guiding of the Holy Spirit, the guiding work of the Holy Spirit includes guiding us to the glory of the Father. It says in verse 14, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. If we think about this then, the Holy Spirit is seeking to bring glory to Jesus, who is bringing glory to the Father. The Holy Spirit is guiding us to Scripture. He is guiding us to make a beeline to Jesus. And He is guiding us to bring glory to the Father. If you are facing trial or persecution, 
we must be about sharing the gospel. The Holy Spirit is already at work in the world, is he not? Already convicting the world. All we are commanded to do is join that work. Those who may persecute you need to hear the gospel. You're not alone. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself, is already at work, softening hearts and convicting people of sin. We cannot give up because we still have a job to do. And also when we face persecution, we can recognize, we must recognize that the Holy Spirit is ready to guide us. If you're facing a divorce, I can't save your marriage. But I know the God who can. I may be able to help you, but only God can do the work. And God can do, only do the work if you are willing to submit to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Saving your marriage brings glory to the Father. Ending your marriage does not. If you have received a terminal medical diagnosis or have lost your job, the same Holy Spirit can, comfort, can bring comfort and truth into your life. The same Holy Spirit can take your circumstances and through you bring glory to the Father. We can persevere because of the convicting and guiding work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we can persevere through persecution and trials because of the promise of the return of Christ. Look at this again. We'll see this, we saw in this paragraph, Jesus tells them, a little while and I won't be with you, and then a little while and I'll be with you. And the disciples go, what? Right? What, what does he mean by that? What's he talking about? Right, they're completely confused. And we've seen this over and over in the Gospel of John. This should not surprise us, right? The disciples are continually confused by what Jesus is saying. Remember, they are standing on this side of the crucifixion. Jesus has not died and raised from the dead yet. They're still thinking, if me and you were having these kind of conversations, and I told you, hey, you know, a little while I'm not going to be with you, and then a little while I'm going to be with you, you might be a little confused too, Right? Now, on this side of the resurrection, we can say, ah, I know what Jesus was talking about now, right? But remember, the disciples had not seen Jesus rise from the dead yet. They're still confused, though. Then Jesus gives them some comfort. He's trying to help them understand. He says in verse 20, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. That's not very comforting, is it? It's not super comforting yet. It says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. See, we are in a similar setting. We are in this gap between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Excuse me. We know that the enemy is defeated. He was defeated on the cross. He was defeated at the resurrection. And while he is a wounded enemy, He's not judged yet. He is, he is eternally judged. He is finally judged, but that judgment has not taken place yet. He is still a wounded lion seeking whom he may devour. Very dangerous. Exactly. Very, very dangerous. We will face trial and persecution. Any preacher who tells you otherwise is a liar. 
Any preacher who tells you otherwise is directly opposing what Jesus says here. He uses the future tense, the word will. It's this idea that it absolutely guaranteed will happen. You will. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. If you're a believer today, you will face persecution. You will face trials. And it will seem like all the world around you is so happy. Take heart. Let's look at the rest of this. You will be sorrowful, but. But your sorrow will turn into joy. That is a promise from the almighty God of the universe. You will face trial. The world will seem to be joyful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Those who oppose Christ, those who are of this world, their joy will turn into sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. How is that possible? What kind of joy is this talking about? Think for one instance, think about where the disciples are at. They're on this side. They're right before the crucifixion and resurrection. Their master is about to face an execution of the worst kind. Won't that bring them some sorrow? What do they do when they see the risen Christ? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your closest friend in all the world, someone you look up to, right? And they die, like a horrible, gruesome death. And then three days later, you, were gonna, you saw them again. Imagine the joy, right? There's a joy in the resurrection. And finally, we will also see that there's a joy in the second coming, Right? We are on this side of the second coming. Imagine when the trumpet sounds and when Christ comes and we get to see him. Woo! Amen. What a joy that will be. All of the trial, all of the persecution that we have faced, none of it will matter because our sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus uses a great illustration here. I don't even need to improve on it. If you've ever seen a child be born, those of you who are parents here, if you've given birth to a child or seen a child born, watching my wife give birth was hard. Here's my wife laid out on a bed, struggling to push out a baby. It's hard to watch for a husband. But the second that baby came out, all the hardship, all the worry, gone. Child's born. All that sorrow immediately turns into joy. You can say in, in that same exact way, when Christ returns, it'll be that fast. Sorrow will turn to joy. What an amazing, amazing promise here. Jesus continues and says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask, in the, uh, ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. In other words, facing trial and persecution needs to be done with prayer. At this point, the disciples had not asked anything in, in, in Jesus' name. They probably weren't quite 100% sure 
really what's going on with Jesus yet. But there will come a time when they will ask the Father in their name. He says, ask in my name. We've already talked about this. This is to ask in the will of God, as Jesus tells us in, in, in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. When we ask something in Jesus' name, it's not like those are magic words. That when I finish out a prayer and I say, in Jesus' name, amen. That when I said those words, everything I just asked for now magically happens. No. What I'm asking is, Lord, if it's your will, would you do it? And if it's not, may I go through that anyway? Asking in my name. So what is, what's the big deal about prayer? How can that help us with, tr- with persecution? Those are circumstances, right? This is happening to you right now, whether it be a trial or a persecution. It's happening to you. How in the world is prayer going to help that? Well, prayer brings comfort. Prayer hands those circumstances over to the Lord. Prayer should also include worship. We think of the words, hallowed be your name or holy be your name. From the, from, the, from the Lord's Prayer. Prayer also focuses us on the kingdom instead of our circumstances. Scripture tells us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray, we're giving those circumstances, we're giving all that over to the Lord and saying, you know what, Lord? Instead, I want to focus on you. May I be used for your kingdom. May my circumstances not stop me from serving you. We must keep an eternal perspective when it comes to persecution and trials. If you are a believer, the trials of this life are temporary, but the joy of heaven is eternal. When Christ returns or when we arrive at the gates of heaven, cancer will no longer exist. Relationships will no longer fail. Persecution will be no more. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more tears. Our sorrow on this earth will be wiped away. And if you are a believer, Jesus will turn that sorrow into joy. We can persevere because Jesus has promised that he will return. These circumstances are a temporary light affliction. But Christ is coming back and we can be guaranteed of that. Finally and thirdly, we see that we can persevere through, uh, through, through persecu- persecution and trials because of Jesus' sovereign rule over this world. Lastly, Jesus gives them some, some uh, final notes. This is, in fact, the, the, the farewell address proper ends at the end of this chapter and moves into a prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples. He says to them, uh, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I no longer will speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now, that's a strange phrase there. Let's pause there real quick. I want to make sure we understand this. This can sound pretty odd. Jesus says, I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. This here is not a denial of the intercessory, intercessory role of Jesus. Jesus is not saying, I'm not interceding for you. In fact, Jesus, it tell, the scriptures tell us in other places in no uncertain terms that Jesus does pray on our behalf to the Father. What he emphasizes here. Is that, is that believers have direct 
access to the Father. That's right. We have direct access to the Father. If you are a believer, God the Father loves you directly. Because as verse 27 says, you love Jesus and faithfully believe in him. You have direct access to the Father. But then the the disciples then, they get a little bit encouraged by this, right? Jesus speaks to them a little more plainly. He continues, for the Father himself loves you, verse 27, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into this world, and now I am leaving and the, the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, isn't that great? I love that. Like the, even showing just emotionally what's going on here, right? Ah, now you are speaking plainly. Now us dummies can understand, right? They're saying, really, now we get it. Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you are from God. Essentially, they've been asking questions throughout this discourse, throughout these chapters, and Jesus has answered every single one of their questions. And finally, they come to the place and they say, you have all the answers. We know that you're God. In fact, that was a way in in this culture, the way you could know if someone's teaching was from the Lord was if they could answer all your questions. I want to promise you, I can't answer all of your questions. Right, I can't. That doesn't mean that what I'm preaching is not from God's word. In fact, we have God's word, so we can trust that more than we can trust Justin, right? I don't have to have all the answers to the questions because scripture gives us those answers. But here they, they hear Jesus say this and they say, now we understand and we believe. We, this is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus then answers them, do you believe? It's kind of interesting that he responds to this with a little bit of suspicion. Wouldn't you think this is exactly what Jesus is going for? I made my point, you get it now. Ha, now you just told me you get it. Great, close the book, let's pray, and get on home. That's not what he does, though. He says, do you really believe? In fact, he knows that he can question them because he knows it's going to happen. He tells them right here, he says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. What's about to happen? Jesus is about to take the disciples to a garden to pray. And in that garden, Judas Iscariot is going to lead a group of soldiers right to Jesus, kiss him on the cheek, and say, this is the one. Take him. Now, with a little bit of a fight from Peter even ill-attempted fight and rebuked fight by Jesus, what happens? Jesus gets taken to trial. Where do the disciples go? They leave. They go back to their homes. They run away. Even Peter, who was not, not hours before, was willing to chop the head off of a soldier to fight for Jesus. When confronted by a little girl, said, do you follow Jesus? He said, I don't know who that is. I don't know who he is. No idea. 
the disciples run. In a similar way, when we face trials or, or, or persecutions, we find out a lot about what we believe. Right? They, you find out what Jesus questions their beliefs. Do you really believe? If they really believed Jesus was the Son of God, would they have run? Shouldn't. But yet when persecution, when trials come, you find out exactly what you believe. The same way we find out a lot about what we really believe when we face trials and persecutions. Do we trust God? Or do we trust ourselves? Or money? Or some other relationship to get us through those trials and persecutions? Whatever you trust apart from God is in fact an idol. It is something that you worship. That may be the very reason God has brought that trial to you. He may want to crush that idol so that you will trust him instead. The idol, whatever or whoever that may be, will fail you, but God will never fail. Jesus tells his disciples that, you, that, they, that he will face the cross without his friends. But he's not alone because he has the presence of the Father. Tribulation is guaranteed. We are guaranteed that we will face persecution. We will face trials. We will face tribulations. But we can rest knowing, as Jesus tells his disciples, that he has overcome the world. Look at this last bit of the verse. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Many face the evil in the world around us and come to the conclusion that God doesn't care or he is somehow unable or unwilling to help us. Nothing could be further from the truth. We may not always understand why things happen, but we can be sure that God is in control. The enemy we face is a defeated enemy. Our circumstances will certainly change. But God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will always be in control. Amen. Have you given your circumstances to him? Have you decided that no matter what trials or persecutions come your way, that you will trust the Lord? Have you prayed? We can persevere because of Jesus' sovereign control over this world. He has overcome the world. Now we began today looking at the Apostle Paul and the trials that he faced. We saw those trials and wondered how on earth could he face such terrible circumstances? More still, maybe you wondered how would you respond given the same circumstances? At the end of Paul's ministry, he wrote a letter to a young pastor a friend whom he had led to Christ and whom he had entrusted with pastoring one of the churches that he had started. What Paul tells Timothy is not some magical formula for having his best life now, nor does he give him five steps of avoiding persecution. Rather, he encourages him with some simple instructions and shares with Timothy what he did in his life. If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read this to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul says these final words to his friend Timothy. 
It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachings to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded or clear-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And then Paul tells what he has done. He says, for I am already poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul pushed ahead through the trials and persecutions. He did not decide to quit sharing the gospel. Rather, he continued to preach the word. He fought the good fight. He did not let the pressure of this world steal his joy and his faithfulness. Rather, he pushed on knowing that the race was not over. He finished the race. Nor did Paul come to the conclusion that God did not love him or somehow had abandoned him, but rather he remained faithful knowing that Jesus has overcome the world. He kept the faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. God, you give us some wonderful instruction how we can know how to, how to face trials, how to face persecution. Lord, what a joy it is to know that the Holy Spirit is at work. That the Holy Spirit even now is convicting people of sin. Lord, we are not on our own when we share the gospel. We are called to join the work. Lord, your Holy Spirit guides us and directs us to you. Lord, you promise that our joy will be, our sorrow will be turned into joy. We can trust that promise. And Lord, you remind us that you are in control, that you have overcome this world. I pray now during this time of invitation, Lord, that if there's some way that, that we have uh, not followed you, if there's some way that, that we have maybe faced, tried to face persecution or trials on our own, Lord, today we would repent of that. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you, someone here that your Holy Spirit even now is drawing to yourself, God, I pray that they would submit to that drawing, Lord, that they would come to know you as their Savior. I pray this all in your name. Amen.